I wanted to preach from Mark, and then I was like, oh, well, Pastor Vaughn is preaching through it. But I was like, well, it's Mark 8, and he's in Mark 5. By the time he gets to Mark 8, you guys will probably forgot what, what, what I'm going to say, so it'll be all right. And you're going to forget because it's going to be so many months, right? Because we like to go in-depth. All right, Mark 8, you guys there? All right. It says, and he began to teach them, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now I'd like to focus on the latter part of this section today, verses 36 and 37, where it says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Before we do that, let's pray and ask God's blessing on the word. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that um, it goes forth and does its work. We pray that it would do that now. Open up our hearts, Lord, to whatever you want to show us from your word today, God. Um, May it be buried deep in our hearts and deep in our souls and bear much fruit for your glory. Amen. Uh, When Jesus talks about the soul here in this passage, he's trying to underscore a key thought. Our souls are priceless. They can't be bought. They can't be traded. And there is no exchange to be made. And here's the thing. Each of you here, you have a soul. You have one and only one. And it is of such high value that you can't put a price on it. And we must treat preciously what God treats preciously. We must value what God values. Every soul matters to God. Every soul. Every single soul. His word says that he desires none to perish. So, when people murder... They are treating flippantly what God treats preciously. And it's against his desire. And when people murder, they're they're snuffing out God's creation. They're snuffing out the very thing he prizes most. Humans created in his image. And they're destroying the image of God. But the image of God is not just the body. It is the body and the soul joined together. And when murder happens, whether it is with Islamic terrorists going on rampages in Paris, a crazed man shooting up a Planned Parenthood in Colorado, which just happened, a police officer gunning down a civilian without cause, or an abortion doctor hacking apart a baby, 
it grieves God. It grieves him. It truly grieves him. Life is precious. All life is precious. It doesn't matter someone's intellectual capability, someone's physical capability. All life is precious. So when we talk about the soul, we are talking about something that is very near and dear to God's heart because we're talking about the pinnacle of his creation. So you cannot take seriously enough the state of your own soul. What is the standing of your soul before God? Because when it comes to your soul, you're forced to deal with questions, hard questions, such as, what am I doing here? Why was I created? What is my future after I die? And simply, what is my life for? So it kind of forces us past superficial questions and to deal with questions that really deal with what matters. And we only have a few ways to deal with these questions. Um, One of the ways people deal with it is they just ignore those questions. I've talked, it seems like many times when I share with people, when I share the gospel with people, um, a constant phrase I hear from them is, I don't really think about that much. I'm trying to get them to think about eternal matters, and I don't really think about that. And they just push it to the side. Or I'll worry about that later in my life. So they don't want to think about it. I remember when I first got saved, um, I shared with uh, my girlfriend at the time um, about Jesus. And I was, you know, blunt and let her know that, you know, if you don't believe this message, you're going to hell. And so she went home and was telling her family this. And her sister, who had never really even heard this concept before, hated it. This concept of going to hell, that she could spend an eternity there. So whenever it was brought up, she would just yell out, Stop! Stop! I don't want to hear about it. It was easier for her to simply ignore the issue and act like it didn't exist. Well, doing this doesn't do any good. It's just like, you know, the ostrich burying its head in the sand. If I can't see it coming, it doesn't really exist. That doesn't really cut it. Uh, This type of thinking really doesn't acknowledge any type of authority and kind of just allows you to do whatever you please, right? Well, we can also make up answers. And when I'm talking with people, I mean, I like to ask them questions to kind of force them to think, hey, why do I believe this? You know, So asking questions like, what's the basis of your belief? Or what is your belief founded on? Uh, Because when I talk to people, I'll, uh, depending on the conversation, I will point them back to this word. And I will tell them, look, um, you might disagree with my foundation of belief, but at least I have a foundation of belief. I have something that I can point to. This is where I get my foundation from. Where do you get yours from? You know what? Surprisingly, when I ask people that, most of them don't have an answer. It's just, they're just kind of shooting from the hip. They're making it up as they go along. They don't have legitimate answer. They, They don't even have a simple answer like, oh, my reason and intellect. But even an answer like that would exalt themselves above God. I remember um, talking with a lawyer years ago. Not my dad. But I remember talking with a lawyer. um, Very, very sharp man about evolution. And he was arguing for evolution and that that God had used the process of evolution. So this idea of theistic evolution. And I just asked him, you know, a few questions. Do you believe in Adam and Eve? And he kind of stumbled over that. I'm like, well, Jesus did. And if you're saying you believe in the Bible, then Jesus said he, he believed in them. 
So I asked him, you know, can you give any evidence, since you are claiming to be Christian, you believe in the Bible, can you give any evidence from the Bible for your position? And he, and he really couldn't. And I was like, can you give any evidence at all? And he really couldn't. So he had just snatched something that he had heard or from the culture or just seemed easier to believe, I guess, and had kind of clung on to that. Um, so he was exalting his own reason uh, above, above God's word. He appealed to his own authority, and the Bible did not concur with him. So when we come up with our own answers, we end up making man the authority. Um, that's not good. So we can attempt to answer life's questions on our own, on issues that really matter, or we can turn to the Word and see what God has to say. When we turn to God's Word, this should be, it is, the ultimate rule for our faith. Everything else is a distant second. And you each have to decide what's the standard for what you believe. I mean, you have to have a standard. Whether you know it or not, you have some standard. You might think it's a flexible standard, but you have a standard. If we are going to look to this, then we're acknowledging that this is the standard. This is the authority. So we're going to look for answers to life questions. This is the place to go. This is the source of truth. And when we talk about the soul, we are talking about the immaterial part of man. You have the material versus the immaterial, the tangible versus the intangible. Look at Matthew 10. It says in verse 26, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So here we see this clear distinction between the body, which has a physical substance, and the soul, which does not have a physical substance. It's immaterial. We learned something key here. God rules over both the body and the soul. He decides where both go. He is the one with the power. So man is comprised of both, a material and an immaterial. What about this immaterial? It's called different things in the scriptures. The mind, the heart, the strength, the soul, the spirit. <clears throat> All those are describing the inner man, if you will. Uh, it's your character, your thoughts, your intellect, passions, emotions, affections. All of those things make up the totality of who you are immaterially. But don't make a mistake here, because this is a mistake that many have made. Who you are is both material and immaterial. Okay? You're not a person trapped inside a body, and the real you is, is inside where no one can see. No, it's actually a combination. What we see is part of you, and what we don't see is part of you. You have a material side and an immaterial side. Someday, you will die. I know it's a shocker. But you will die, and you will go to heaven or to hell. Right? Where will your body go? For a short time, it will go into the ground. 
But that is just an intermediary time. Your soul will be with God in heaven. But the scripture states that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, your body will be reunited with your soul. We believe in a physical resurrection of the dead. Just as it happened to Jesus, it will happen to us. A one-to-one correspondence. What happened to him will happen to us. His body physically rose from the grave. It was not just some spiritual resurrection that the liberals have tried to claim. It was a physical resurrection. His body came up out of the grave. Ours will too. The vast majority of our existence, eternity, will be our souls reunited with our bodies, our glorified bodies, but with our bodies. So when the scriptures talk about the spirit or the soul or the inner man, uh, what's, what's the emphasis? Why is this important? What's the focus here? Well, look at Mark 7 for a second. Mark seven fourteen, And he called the people to him again and said to them, this is Jesus, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So what we see here is is what, what comes forth is already within. So the inner reveals who we really are. And what is on the inside eventually comes out. Okay, we can try to bottle it. We can try to hide it. Where does it usually come out? At our house. Behind closed doors, right? doesn't always come out here at church, not usually. Maybe not even at our work. But if we asked your family members who you really are, they'd probably have a pretty good idea. I might not. Your friend in front of you might not. But I bet your family members would have a good idea. Because you can't keep it hidden for long. Okay, You can dress it up for a little bit on Sundays. You can take it out on Wednesdays. Um, It's hard to keep hidden all the time. So who you really are eventually comes out. And it is a product of what's already inside you. Yeah, you know, if you ever see, uh, if you ever watch TV, they're interviewing someone who's just, uh, they're interviewing the family of someone who's just done some atrocious act. And a lot of times they say, well, that, that's not who he is. And I'm like, it is who he is. That's why he did it. <clears throat> the Bible says there's none righteous. No, not one. There's no one who seeks after God. There's no one who does good. That is our condition. Fallen. We are fallen. We are depraved. And, and I've even had parents 
tell me, oh, my son would never do that. (laughs) Unless your son is Jesus Christ, (laughs) then your son could do that. All right? You should know your parents. You should know your own heart at least enough to know that someone else could do what you know you're capable of doing. All right? You should have had a clear enough glimpse of your own heart to know that that same type of heart resides in your children. So I would encourage you never to say, my son or my daughter would never do that because the human heart is capable of many things, many devious things. And when I am sometimes counseling people in my office and they say, I don't know where this is coming from. (laughs) It's coming from within. That's where it's coming from. It's coming from within. Listen, here's, here's the danger. Here's the danger with dressing ourselves up on Sunday and on Wednesdays and at work is we end up with a legalism. And legalism ensues without inner sanctification. So we need a cleansing of the inside. Look at Matthew 23. Matthew 23, starting in verse 23. Again, Jesus speaking, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Here's the thing. With the Pharisees, they majored on the minors, and they minored on the majors. They made all the small things huge issues, and all the huge things small issues. And Jesus here compares their inner man to being like dead men's bones. That's horrible. That's horrible. That's pretty bad. Listen, you, you, don't, you don't want to be a legalist. And you also don't want to create legalists in your house, parents. Uh, if, and, and I believe, here's what I believe. You have to fight against this mentality constantly. Because I think human nature tends toward, in some form or fashion, even regenerate human nature uh, towards going back towards the law. It is just drawn back to it. We like rules and conformity. Many people do. You have to be careful not to create legalists in your house. And if you overemphasize external conformity, or only emphasize external conformity, you will, recreate, you will create unregenerate Pharisees in your house. They will know about grace, but it will be from afar. They will know about the sweetness 
of Jesus, but will never experience it themselves. You have to shepherd the heart. You have to shepherd the heart. And if it's just rules, you will fail. And you will fail them. There has to be love, mercy, compassion, grace, forgiveness. That should be the aroma of your home. If your home reeks of Phariseeism, grace will be snuffed out. Grace must abound. Love, compassion, mercy. These are the things that should be at the forefront. Law, sure, but way at the back. Listen, we need to remind ourselves why we were created. I remember thinking this as a kid all the time. Why was I created? Why was I created? Not talking about the birds and the bees, right? But like, why was I ultimately created? What was God doing? And many Christians don't know the answer to this today. They really don't. You were created to love God and enjoy your relationship with him. It's really that simple. Simple to say. Hard to practice. But think of the garden, right? That was the way God intended it. What did he do? Man in perfect union with God. Woman in perfect union with God. And how did they interact with God? The Bible says God walked with them in the cool of the day. Isn't that a neat picture? Like the cool of the day. You know? The sun setting, Temperature's lowing. God's God's there walking with him. That's how it was meant to be. The cool thing is, this is more of a side note, that's actually how it will one day be. God will restore what he originally intended. That's a promise. So God created you, body and soul, for himself, and you are his unique creation. Look at Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. All right, did you catch that? The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It'd be like saying, okay, I'm going to make a list of all the stuff that I'm suffering and dealing with right now, and then I'm going to compare it to the glory that's going to be revealed, and I'm going to see which one's better. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't even compare, right? Everything we're going through, the sufferings, pales in comparison to what awaits us. Read on. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation is groaning for redemption. Why? Because it wants to return to what it was originally designed to do. Which is what? Scream out God's glory. To display it. Right? The heavens declare the glory of God. If they declare it now in the fallen condition, how much more so 
with the new heavens and the new earth. All right, you think the Grand Canyon looks pretty cool now? It's going to be amazing when you see it in an unfallen condition. When it is restored to what it was designed to be originally. So God is working. He's working in us. He's redeeming us. He's redeeming others around us. He's going to redeem his creation. But we got inner stuff going on. Some junk in our lives. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know the state of our heart. At least partially. And I think sometimes that can be self-defeating for some of us. Because in one sense we realize how, I guess, fallen we are. We're redeemed. We acknowledge that. But we also know what's going inside our own heart and it's not very pretty. And sometimes that unprettiness like spews out on other people. Right? Yeah, I don't hear any amens there. I get it. But here's the thing. you got to remember this. God is forming you, and he's shaping you, and he's changing you. Right? He who began a good work, says, will bring it to completion. It's a promise. He's going to bring it to completion. Look at Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, you read this verse and you think, oh, man, I'm in trouble. i got to work out my salvation with fear and trembling? There's definitely a lot of fear and trembling if you're doing that on your own. But you got to read the second verse. For, because it is God who works in you, both to will and and to work for his good pleasure. Okay? God is doing You're doing the work, but really, God's doing the work. And he's doing the greater work. So God is working. He will do his part. It's a guarantee. Will you let him do it? Will you let him do the surgery? Will you let him get in there and work on you? Will you let him mold you and shape you? That's the question. So, your dependence needs to be a God-dependence, not a self-dependence or an independence. And here's the thing. God's commandments aren't meant to show how great you are. Like, hey, I got all the Ten Commandments and I can keep them all. No. His commandments are meant to show how great you're not. They really are, because they should lead you back to the cross. And they should lead you back to complete dependence on God because you realize, I can't. Do it. I mean, the first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. How are you doing with that one? I'm not doing so great. All right, we, we fail pretty miserably just with one that Jesus said was the greatest. We can't even get that one down. So it's meant to drive us back to the cross to realize that we can't do it, that we are completely and utterly dependent on Jesus and his mercy and his grace. That's what we need. So we have a Redeemer that will pick us up out of the ashes. And I love Proverbs twenty four sixteen. Here's what it says. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again. But the wicked stumble in times of calamity. 
Why does the righteous get back up? Because we have someone who keeps picking us back up. That's really the truth. So God is redeeming us. He's transforming us. At the same time, he wants to use us to redeem others. He wants to use us as his ambassadors to reach out to others. And when you look at it from a certain angle, it appears that we are trying to do the impossible. We're trying to stop sinners from going to hell. That's impossible on our own. But with God, it is possible. And listen, the culture is declining here in America. No one thinks differently. But guess what? The culture has been in decline since the pilgrims stepped off their boat 400 years ago. Okay? The, the culture has been going downhill since then. It's the same case 50 years, 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years. Culture, cultures decline. Okay? They might have a little rise to greatness in the sense of their own greatness, but cultures decline. And cultures just don't throw open their arms to the gospel. They just don't do that. Calvin's Geneva had its problems. Luther's Germany had its problems. Look at Israel. I mean, they were a theocracy in their infancy, and they rejected God. They rejected the gospel. And time and again, God sends them prophets over and over again. They reject them. Those were God's chosen people. A theocracy originally. God was the king, and they rejected him. So should it come as any shock when every single country, every single culture, rejects the gospel as a whole? No, it shouldn't. It really shouldn't. But guess what? They might reject it as a whole, but there are people within those cultures that God will save. It's a promise. Every tongue, tribe, every people, God's going to save people from it. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of that. You want to be a part of that? You want to reach those people? Because we have opportunities to do that. It might feel like we're swimming upstream. Guess what? That's the way it's always been. Seriously. Christians have always been swimming upstream. And we got to reach out. Look, guys, time is running out. All right? Not like end of the world stuff tomorrow. But like your life is going to end at some point. It really is. And we're a day closer each day to the day that each of us is going to die. We got to use the time. We got to take advantage, make the most of every opportunity, Ephesians says. Colossians says it similarly. Make the most use of our time. Make the most use of our resources. Be good stewards of what we have been given from the Lord. Look, there's some specific things we want to do here for outreach that the staff, Pastor Vaughn and I, we've been putting together and working on for a few months. And we want everybody to be a part of it. And some of the ways might seem pretty mundane, but they're actually pretty strategic. How are we doing this? Well... It's kind of straightforward and practical for some of it. One, we're redoing the website. Major redesign of the website. What we had has been good for the time that we've had it, but it's time for us to get kind of an updated look. It's going live this week, the new website. Listen, this, why is this important? It's our public face. It really is. Okay. Before they walk through those doors, they're going to walk to their computer and look at our church and find out about it. Okay? And this is our first impression to believers and non believers what they see. 
I don't know about you, but I'd like them to see something that looks pleasing to the eye and that wants them to, to learn more about us. I want to give them information that gives them an, an accurate uh, display of, of who we are. I want them to know areas that they can be ministered to and areas where they can minister. And when you start looking at some of the, the things that people do when they're thinking about going to a church, they're interested in some of it's just basic stuff, the times of the service, what activities are offered. They want a map to the church. And for our church, you need a map, okay? So... <laughs> They want to watch the sermon videos, and we're closing in on getting that. That's going to, might be a few weeks more out, but you're going to be able to watch the sermon video if you want online. Sermon audios you can listen without having to download it from a podcast. Um, obviously what we believe, that's kind of important. All of those things. Now they've done all sorts of research and surveys on people. Uh, they said in 2009, uh, percentage of church attenders who said um, a website was important in picking which church they visited. 34%. Just three years later, it was up to 46% in 2012. Many people believe that's actually on the low side, and now they think the number is probably low side, 70%. Maybe high side, 90%. Okay? So, we want the community to know we're here, and that we want them here. That that costs money, all right. Some of that's it just it costs money to do some of that stuff. But the new website's going live this week. You need to check it out. We'll send out an email when it goes live. I think you're going to like it. Second, we want to use that website to do some outreach. Look, I think we have one of the greatest churches in this area. I really do, and that's not patting myself on the back here, okay? Um, I, I believe that because of our focus, our people, and our ministry. Okay, How many churches are talking about abortion and actively supporting its end? I don't know. I, not, the, not the podcasts I listen to. How many churches will talk about unpopular topics like sin, hell, social injustice, abortion, money? We do. And I want to be like Paul. When he tells the Ephesians, we did not shrink back from telling you the whole counsel of God. You're going to get the whole counsel of God here. You might not like it, but you're going to get it. What about our worship? I think it's pretty stinking good. All right? Our preaching? We have an excellent senior pastor who gives us the word week after week after week. Our youth ministry, I believe, is top-notch. Our college ministry, we have a college ministry of a church, we have 175, 200 people in this church, and we have a pretty legit college and career group. We had a retreat, you guys probably don't even know this, we had a retreat just a couple months ago. We had 45 people, 45 college and career students go on that retreat. That's insane for a church our size. God's using us, God's doing stuff, alright? Do these things have challenges and issues? Well... Do they have people involved in them? Yes. And they're going to have challenges and issues. All right? But seriously, that's, it's not a pat on my back. It's really not because what I've mentioned is really about you all. All right? I'm not on the worship team. I'm not involved in the youth ministry directly. All right, am I overseeing those things? Yes. Am I indirectly involved? Sure. But it's you guys that are making the church to be what God wants him to be. You're a part of it. 
And God, I believe, has blessed us with an amazing church. And you are a part of that amazingness. Because here's the thing. The main focus for all of us is Jesus. Because he's the amazingness of amazingnesses. All right? Yes, that's not a word. But we point people to Jesus. We point people to the cross. If people are here, they're going to hear about Jesus. They're going to hear about the cross. They're going to hear about grace. They're going to hear about his love. They will hear about it. So when people come and visit, I have confidence that they will be loved here, that they'll be accepted here, that they'll be challenged here, that they'll be saved here, that they will grow here. So I want to get the word out. Because here, those things that I believe God wants us to do will occur. And we have a variety of ways we want to do that. The thing is, those things cost money. That's why we're going to do a little campaign to raise some of that money so we can do those things. Look, I know money is tight. It's tight for my family, right? We took a little cut this year. I get it. And guess what? I've been behind on my giving. Because it's been so tight. And we've been scratching and clawing to catch up. And with the Lord's blessing, we caught up a few weeks ago and we were able to get back to where we needed to be with our giving. All right? Encourage you, if you guys are behind, maybe some of you need to catch up as well. Because I want God's work to go forward. All right? It's just, it takes money to do those things. It's just the truth. You guys realize that in about eight and a half years, might seem like a long time for some of you, but most of us know it's really not that long, this church will be paid off. We won't have a mortgage anymore. All right? That's cool. Yeah. That will free up $60,000 every year. All right? It's a big mortgage payment. It's a big church. But I believe that we can actually pay that off in less than eight and a half years. That's our current trajectory with the bank, but I believe we can pay it off sooner, and we will talk about that uh, once we get a couple more years down the road. There are people in here that could be a big part of helping pay that mortgage off. All right? God has blessed some of you in here financially. We can make a big dent in that. Let's get out from under this mortgage. Let's use that 60000 for the kingdom, all right? Now, it's being used for the kingdom, right? Because it's supporting the church. But let's, let's get that mortgage done and use it for kingdom stuff, for getting the gospel out. So here's the thing. We want people to hear about Jesus. They're going to hear about him here in this church. And we want to be wise and strategic in reaching out to the community. So let's get people into this church to hear about Jesus. That's that's the second thing, is some of the outreach stuff that we'll present to you in the next week or so. Third, we have some invites we want to pass out um, for the outreach that we're going to be doing. That's one of the things. So if the ushers want to come forward, we have just a little um, card that invites people to the upcoming children's musical and our upcoming Christmas Eve service. Okay, So I encourage you to take some of these. And hand them out to your friends, to your family, to your neighbors. Have your kids hand them out to their friends. Listen, it's really simple. How many times a year? There's basically people, many people go just to church two times a year. Easter and Christmas, right? Hey, let's take advantage of that, guys. If they want to come, let's give them a place that they can come. A legit church where they'll hear the gospel of Jesus Christ right here. Right? Non-believers and believers alike are looking for a place. Uh, today, 
I googled Christmas Eve service. I got only one hit on the front page for a church in the area. Okay? Just one hit. I thought there'd be stuff all over the place. Right? In about one or two weeks, there's going to be at least two churches on that front page. No, seriously. We will get there on the front page, and it costs money to do that. But we will make sure, if anyone Googles Christmas Eve service in the greater St. Charles area, we're going to pop up on that top page. Apparently, we're not going to have any competition to do it, which is great because it's cheaper that way. But these things cost money. It costs money if you want to do some advertising. It costs money if you want to get the word out about your church. I'd encourage you, when we talk more about it, to be a part of it. We're not talking thousands of dollars from each of you, but we're talking maybe a couple hundred bucks. All right? But we want people here to hear that gospel. So let's take advantage. You're getting some of these invites now. It's real simple. You can say to your coworker, your neighbor, you could say a couple things. Hey, if you're looking for a Christmas Eve service, I'd love for you to come to our church. We have one. I'm kind of surprised. A lot of churches don't. This is, I think, only our third year of doing it. You could ask them, hey, are you going anywhere for church on Christmas Eve? Many of them will probably say no, or I'm not sure. I haven't decided. Hand them the little card. Hey, come check out our church. Love to have you. Here's the thing. Bringing it back around. Why do we want those people here? Because their souls are precious to God. That's really the thing. We want them here because their souls are precious to God. Therefore, they need to be precious to us. And we want to reach those people. We want to reach them with the gospel. And there is a world right outside our doors that sorely needs this gospel. And we need to give them the opportunity to hear it. That's the truth. We need to reach out to them. Listen, we are told the gates of hell will not prevail. That's what we're told by Jesus, okay? The gospel is guaranteed to go forth. It has for 2,000 years, and it's going to keep going forth. Let's be a part of that, okay? What is a prophet? A man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It profits him nothing. We have to let ourselves know that first. Everything the world has to offer, what does Paul call it? He calls it dung, right? Compared to Jesus. We have to let ourselves know that first, and then we have to let people know that. Our friends, our family, our neighbors, our community. We have to let them know it. If Christianity is true, it's worth dying for. If Christianity is true, it's worth living for. Okay? If it's not true, then it's, it's, it's not even worth our time. Let's move on. Let's get out of here, right? But it's true. It is objectively true. And God sees your soul as precious, so precious that he sent his own son to redeem your soul. He sent his son to die on the cross for you. He spilled his own son's blood so that yours wouldn't have to be spilled. That's how much he values your soul. It is precious to him. And the Bible says if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, the work 
that happened on the cross that he did for you, that God sent him to do, then you can have that eternal life. You have to trust. You have to trust in Jesus. And it's yours. Eternal life. Your soul is precious, there's no doubt about that. But we talked about what's going on in the inner man. There's some nasty stuff going on there, right? God wants to change that. He wants to redeem that. He wants to sanctify it. He wants to cleanse it and make it what he wants it to be. He does that through the blood of his son. So put your faith in his son. And finally, let's, let's do some outreach, folks. All right? Not for us, but for him. Let's get the word out. Not just a word out, but the word. All right? The good news. Let's pray. Lord, we do want your gospel to go forth. We want to see unbelievers hear your word and respond in faith. And many of us are here today because we at one time were that unbeliever and someone shared with us. And we were an answer to someone else's prayer, God. So we pray for our family. We pray for our friends. We pray for our community, God, that your gospel would go forth, that we would be a part of that, that we'd be able to participate in getting your gospel to go forth. Lord, we want to see souls saved. We want to see you redeem them. We want to see you snatch them from the pit of hell, God, that they're dangling over. You promise it, God, so we believe it. I ask for your blessing upon our endeavors, Lord. If it's just man-made efforts and us going about on our own, then it'll fall flat on its face, God. So we ask for you to bless our work, to be a part of it, to go before us and to do your work. Bring the people here, unbelievers and believers alike. Draw them, God, that we might minister to them, that we might share with them, God, that we might be used by you to see your kingdom go forth. All of this, God, for your glory all of it. In Jesus' name, amen.